Welcome to In Search of Black Power. I'm Lawrence Grand Prix, Director of Research for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. I am Rasheem, Independent Scholar and Researcher. So today we want to talk a little bit about addiction. It's a topic increasingly in the news. Obviously, uh, some people know Michael Jackson and Prince uh, allegedly both died from taking uh, off-market pills for pain that had too much essentially fentanyl or uh, synthetic opioids in them. And with the rise of TV shows like Dope Sick, I read the book Dope Sick, this has been a consistent conversation in our community, but it actually has a few things to make it hard to talk about. It has yeah. a lot of science, which not just our community, I think everybody struggles with, mm -hmm. but it also has a lot of shame. Yes. And it has a lot of feelings of anxiety around talking about the issue. So we wanted to talk about it here today. We specifically wanted to take our approach to it, which is maybe to challenge some of the orthodoxies around how people have traditionally been taught to think about issues of addiction and even so-called radical solutions like so-called harm reduction. So the question that I want to start off today with is what are African-centered critiques of mainstream approaches to the issue of addiction, overdose, and harm reduction, and how can we find grassroots alternatives? So to start, we are in a world where not only are there the drugs from plants that I think people know that they may have grew up with, like heroin, which is distract, extracted from the opium poppy. Mm -hmm. You literally have to grow it from the ground and extract it. You have a world where in China, in Mexico, there are literally large facilities where people are producing artificial versions of the chemical found in these plants. So a drug, specifically, let's talk about the painkillers, the opiates that come from the uh, the poppy, because that's where a lot of the overdoses are coming from. The natural version of it, these are called opioids, ending with an OD, right? Not an OD as an overdose, but the letters OD, opioids. But you have this increasingly rise of synthetic fentanyl, carfentanyl opiates that are artificial. You don't have to grow them. You can literally manufacture them like toys and widgets. So they can be incredibly plentiful and actually, in many cases, far more chemically dense and potent than what you get from the plant. So what we're happening, and people are like, why are there so many overdoses? What's going on? We all grew up, well, cities like Baltimore. I grew up in a city that has a long history of heroin addiction depicted in shows like The Wire. Mm. A lot of people trace it back to not <clears throat> just deindustrialization in the 60s, but people coming back from the war in Vietnam. Vietnam is in the so-called golden triangle of Southeast Asia, one of the world's top heroin-producing regions of the world, and people were at war. So people used drugs to numb the pain of being at war. So it's actually funny, they did studies on the GIs coming back from war. I want to circle back to it, but the white GIs, because they couldn't get heroin in their white neighborhoods, but also because they had more jobs. They had more connections to things in their society because it wasn't hit as hard by deindustrialization in the suburbs, a lot of them kicked the habit. Full-blown heroin addicts, but just kicked it when they came home. Black folks, black GIs, came home. Neighborhoods impacted by white flight, the flea of capital, deindustrialization, 
and the underground economy rose and a lot of them stayed addicted. So in that world, many of us are used to heroin from the plant being a dominant thing in our community and people having this chaotic lifestyle. But with these synthetic drugs that you don't have to grow, that you can manufacture like widgets that are very, very potent, that's a big part of what's driving an even more intense overdose epidemic in our communities. It's the rise of these synthetic, oftentimes cheaper, more potent drugs, displacing the heroin that a lot of us knew and many of the people that we knew may have grew up with. I think one of the, the really key points that you mentioned uh, at the start of this particular episode was uh, how do we get to that point of like even seeking even seeking some of these drugs, right? It's usually to cope with some sort of pain, whether that is physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain. Um, and I think that that is often an overlooked part. That mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that Sheely points out is that much of the drug use in the U.S. is a response to injustices that come from the political economy of capitalism and its relationship and other forms of oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... One thing in terms of like even just starting to have the conversation, just identifying uh, what are some of the things that might contribute to a person even seeking these to to self soothe or or self medicate. Um, just really having that conversation of why does that even start in the mm-hmm. first place? But I think you really hit it on the nose when you said it typically starts from pain or a seeking of pleasure, mm-hmm. right? Or, yeah, well, def- and again, not to get too far ahead, but the distinction between drug use and drug addiction. Right. Because I know people, many of the people watching might know people who have on and off used street drugs for most of their life and maybe have never actually spiraled into chaotic, archetypical addiction, homelessness, mm-hmm. illegality, or maybe they did for some period of their life, but they actually kind of aged out of it, and they may occasionally dabble from time to time. Yeah. But we don't see those stories on the news. We see the broken down, completely destitute person, right? Mm-hmm. What's changing, though, and what a lot of people fear is that with the rise of synthetic opioids, and if we actually look at the graph of opioid deaths, overdose deaths, and to, this graph stops in 2017, it's even worse now because with the pandemic, people were shut in, people were disconnected from the world, so many more people spiraled into addiction. The actual nationwide overdose deaths are over 100,000 for the first time in the nation's history. You have it so that even a casual user, mm-hmm. um, and it sounds like a very anti-drug, scare tactic, dare talking point, but in this case, it might actually be true, that with the street pressing of pills from fentanyl, it can be incredibly imprecise how much fentanyl to other fillers are in that pill. And so you really can have it so that just one pill with too much fentanyl or car fentanyl, even more potent uh, versions of fentanyl in it can actually be lethal, mm-hmm. right? So you have folks who are either casual drug users or are not in a full-blown chaotic spiral of drug use, but occasionally dabble, risking overdose death mm-hmm. from their drug usage. And that's really scared a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. That's why a bunch of people angry and demanding some sort of answer. And in our society, as is currently configured, the dominant answer for a lot of people is addiction treatment, specifically through the lens of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and so-called 12 steps, right? Mm -hmm. So we actually can put the 12 steps on the screen right now, because I think that this has been so embedded in our culture. You watch any TV show, you watch The Simpsons, you watch, I mean, half of the writers in Hollywood have been 12 steps, so many of them have an affinity for it. It's just kind of become embedded in the culture, but one thing that, and this is where the critique starts, 
when you actually look at some of the 12 steps and di dissect some of its history, mm -hmm. there are some things that, again, not just me, many elders, many scholars have been concerned about, right? Mm -hmm. So let's just literally, I'm not gonna go through all 12 steps, but yeah. just wanna outline some things that sort of stand out to me. And if anything stands out to you, please yeah, join yeah. in. Step one, we admit that we're powerless over our addiction that allows it to become unmanageable, right? So this idea of powerlessness is a huge part of 12-step ideology. Yes. And it's important to remember, many folks don't know this, 12-step comes out of the Great Depression. It comes out of white evangelical Christian theory from the Great Depression. So in the 30s in Ohio, there were groups of people who were struggling with alcohol, you know, medicating the pain of poverty in the Great Recession, and they developed a explicitly religious Christian ideology based upon certain evangelical theories that's like, essentially, you are a sinner, you have sinned, your sin is addiction, you must beg the Lord for penance mm -hmm. and decenter yourself mm -hmm. and admit to your personal failings and allow God, the Creator, to dominate your life. Right. Basically. And we're going to talk about whether it's effective or not empirically, <laughs> but just conceptually. I think if you're a white person and you have a lot of ego and you have been taught that you mm. run the world, decentering your ego might be good for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you are an oppressed person mm -hmm. and you have been taught that your sin is your <clears throat> color, your sin is coming from backward dark Africa, mm -hmm. your sin is not being enough like white people, mm -hmm. then it's very dangerous to kind of center powerlessness as a methodology of treatment. Yeah. Um... Man, so it, I still, and I'm sure we're going to still, it's still going to come up in my mind of thinking, even like when you were talking about the origins out of Great Depression, uh, people dealing with poverty and pain and that sort of thing. That's going to that's gonna keep uh, coming up for me in my thinking. Um, that whole initial piece around powerlessness, uh, one of the things that Sheely talks about is spiritual alienation and how there's this objectifying and subjectifying mm -hmm. of God. And real quick, this is Jerome Shealy, professor oh, at right. Morgan State University, <laughs> who has written extensively on this topic that we're going to continue to reference throughout this section. But I'm sorry, just so people know. Please continue. No worries. I hope we put the um, the uh, the the text that we're referencing mm -hmm. it from. Yeah, the, no, we'll definitely yeah. have all that. Um, so in that... Uh, uh, in Human Services and the Afrocentric Paradigm, which is Dr. Sheely's book, he talks a bit about spiritual alienation and the impact that that has. And there's this way in which through the 12-step program, uh, there's this uh, separation from mm -hmm. God, right? I'm separate from God. I don't have any power. Um, and then how that plays out. And then there's the Afrocentric approach wherein I am connected to God. I'm mm -hmm. connected to humanity. Um, it's a whole different, it's a shift in thinking and it's a shift in approach. And I think similar to what you said, if you are a person who you have lived in a different, had a different worldview, mm -hmm. for example, he also talks about white identity development in this book. Mm -hmm. um, if you've had that as part of your central upbringing or you know, socialization. I can see how it, you may need to decentralize your ego. But in this situation, it's just making you 
I mean, for lack of a better word, a slave. Even I, I, mm-hmm. I feel like it, it, it reinforces you being a slave to addiction. Like you're you are a slave yeah. to whatever your drug is. Not that you have the power, not that you're connected exactly. to community it, or family mm-hmm. or anything. It's the famous scene from every sitcom that's ever done a very special episode in addiction. Mm-hmm. Guy stands up and says, hi, I'm Bob. I'm mm-hmm. an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Alcoholic becomes your identity. Right. It defines you. You're, you stay an alcoholic your entire life. You're never not an alcoholic. Yeah. Right. And that just goes back to the steps. So it's like, uh, go to step five, I believe. Um, no, I'm sorry. Um, step six. We are entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. So yeah. addiction is a defect of character. It's not a response to the pain of the legacy of slavery. It's not a response to, I mean, right. even in, um, they call him, you know, Big Bill, uh, the guy who is even the founder of AA. It's like not even a response to the uh, Great, Great Depression. Mm-hmm. It's a character of def- a defect of character. It's an mm-hmm. individualized view of the world where you as an individual are responsible for your salvation yeah. and your sin, which is a very Christian way of viewing the world, which mm-hmm. is not how all people view the world, which mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna get to later. Um, but again, there are, and just as a general meta commentary, none of this should be interpreted as twelve step is inherently horrible and should be destroyed. Mm-hmm. It's far more complicated than that. I'm hoping we have time to get into the most complications today. Everybody I've talked to was like, there are good parts to it. There are parts that are not so good. A lot of people have benefited. It is a communal methodology. It is a spiritual methodology. And a lot of people have benefited from it. But the question is, are they benefiting from the 12 steps themselves? Or are they benefiting from community and spirituality, which we could get without the 12 steps? Right. That's the question I want to kind of explore briefly. Because if you actually look at the mainstream scientific literature, Mm -hmm. even the sort of secular public health academics, many of them are basically vouching for 12-step as the effective evidence-based methodology for addiction. So you can even look at the New York Times and show the cover of the New York Times story because that has been in debate over the empirical effectiveness of 12-step. And New York Times in 2020 chimed in on this debate, specifically around Alcoholics Anonymous, to basically claim that, no, the evidence is in. We've done all the number crunching. We've looked at all the meta studies, and it's clear that 12-step actually works. They actually call it as close to a free lunch in public health as you can get. Mm. You know, so this is a pretty ringing review of 12-step, which does not match up with a lot of the critiques that I've read, a lot of the analysis that I've read. So I'm just going to read a brief segment from a book called The Sober Truth, which is a uh, it's actually not from the sober truth. It's from a based upon that book. There are people who have questioned the methodology of the New York Times because there's a long-standing critique of studies around 12-step claiming their effectiveness. And basically, in a nutshell, all I think you're really seeing with the 12-step studies is that people saying, if you focus on sobriety and abstinence, you're more likely to be abstinent and more sober. There is no actual proof that the 12 steps themselves are what's causing that sobriety. Yeah. Right? So if you like to show up to meetings, you're more likely to be in the study. If you drop out of the meetings, you by definition won't be in the study. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the studies empirically proving the effectiveness of 12 step, they just show the people who show up. And the people that show up are the people who tend to like it, mm-hmm. the people who it tends to work for. And no matter who you talk to, the effectiveness rates of AA, somewhere between... on the low end, 30% on the high end. So even in the best case scenario, that's still, let's just be generous, 35%. That's still 65% of people who 12-step is not going to work for. Yeah. So 
The question is, again, is that the best you can do? The question is, should we interrogate and analyze the culture of 12-step to actually see how it compares to alternatives? Or do we just accept this long-standing reality that it's the best we can do, it's all we have, and because a lot of people talk about it anecdotally, that must be empirical proof that it works. So I'm actually just going to read this brief segment um, because what the New York Times studying is referencing is something called the Cochrane Review. And this is basically a critique of the Cochrane Review and how it's being interpreted. So the authors of the Cochrane Review tell their positive findings is that AA improves rates of continuous abstinence at 12, 24, and 36 months with a 7% average of one year. This announced positive results compared with the first review was due solely to the switching of measurements from actual recovery rates to continuous abstinence. But there's far-reaching problems with the self-selected population study. Taken overall, the multitude of measures and periods over which subjects were observed offer a lot to pick and choose from in claiming that AA is potentially beneficial. All the same, such benefits were not apparent across the board, and the reverse was often the case with AA performing worse on critical measures. People and other interventions racked up on average just as many total abstinence days. AA, the Cochrane found, did not show a difference in percent of days abstinence with non-12-step approaches at 12 months. This means the people in AA were more likely to have experienced unbroken abstinence over this period. But people in other interventions, which display less abhorrence of some levels of drinking, racked up on average just as many total abstinent days. Mm. So this is a huge debate between so-called abstinence only, which AA is. It's like you must never drink again, not at your sister's wedding, not at communion if you're a Catholic. Alcohol must never touch your list, and if it does, you're a sinner. Mm-hmm. Versus other approaches, so-called SMART. SMART is a, uh, a, a non-abstinence-only um, alcoholic intervention that tries to give you different tools, cognitive behavioral tools, the less religious tools to deal with uh, addiction. So one thing this quote is pointing at is essentially a rebound effect that happens sometimes with abstinence-only AA effects, where if you don't drink, you tend to stay totally abstinent. Mm-hmm. And the New York Times studies explicitly said that is the outcome we're looking for, total abstinence. And so therefore, of course, because AA says you got to be abstinence, if you're measuring for abstinence, AA is going to be better than other stuff, which does not ask you to be totally abstinent. Right. So it's kind of a tautology. But more than that, what, this, what other studies have pointed out, and this one is alluding to, is that if you go off the wagon, there are some studies that show you're more likely to binge drink with AA as compared to other methodologies. Because if you have alcohol past your lips, you've already sent. Right. So. In for a penny, in for a pound, right? right? And there's actual studies that prove, that show that there's a real rebound effect that once you start drinking, if the only thing you have is AA abstinence only, people are more likely to binge drink, mm-hmm. which was not studied in this study methodology, right? So again, it's like you have the New York Times, some people call it the fake news, New York Times, the mainstream media. And it's not quite that it's fake news, it's that the metrics that it's using are actually really skewed to a particular interpretation of what a positive result is. And just one more thing, and I want to get your, your feedback on all this, is that I actually looked at some of the studies the New York Times was claiming prove AA is effective. And one of them is uh, called Can Encouraging Substance Abuse Patients to Participate in Self-Health Groups Reduce Demand for Healthcare? A quasi-experimental study. And I found this really interesting because this is not a study of anything except how often do people go to healthcare 
if they're in AA. Mm. And what's it's found if they go less, right? So they're claiming that as an inherent good from like a public health perspective because the theory is addiction overloads our public health infrastructure. Mm. If you just flip your perspective, you can easily view that as a bad thing. If you suffered addiction your whole life, you might need more healthcare. Mm-hmm. You might need to go to the doctor more. And they're comparing it with like therapy. And therapy is essentially a healthcare intervention. So it's basically a tautology where it's like the people in AA are not in healthcare, but the people in therapy are in healthcare. Well, it's like therapy is healthcare. So of course they're going to be in healthcare more. The question is, is that good or bad? Mm-hmm. And they're saying it's bad solely from their perspective of being public health professionals related to people like in hospitals and academics who see it only as a question of addicts overloading the healthcare system versus a potentially African-centered, potentially human-centered theory, which is like they should be in treatment more if they have health issues. We should see it as an expression of our humanity to bring these people to treatment. Also, AA could be having a chilling effect on people getting needed healthcare. Because mm-hmm. they're like, well, they're going to pump you full of drugs, they're going to pump you full of Percocets, don't trust mainstream medical professions because they don't have our abstinence-only framework. So it's all about what your interpretation is. It's not that the data is fake, it's not that the news is fake, it's that there's a question about how we interpret the data and there's just fundamental differences between someone like me that to me proves AA is dangerous <laughs> because people aren't getting health care. <laughs> but they're saying, oh, no, it proves it works because people aren't getting health care. Also, there's this, um, I don't know, a high level of dependency. And I think that starts with that first step of like just basically stripping you down. I am powerless. I have no control. Mm-hmm. I cannot do this without um, the whole piece around looking at God as external. Um now, one of the things within the Afrocentric paradigm is is de- there's definitely a spiritual component, but not spiritual component that is strictly connected to an organized religion, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's more like self-efficacy. It's more like communal, communal uh, efficacy, self-determination. It is like a sense of uh, self, like um, t- more to flip in terms of like just taking more agency over oneself. Um, and I definitely feel like this does deserve a critique, even if it is wor- working for some folks. I think it deserves uh, a social critique, critique as well as a cultural critique. Mm-hmm. critique. Um, why aren't there more uses or exploration of, for example, what the Nation of Islam did mm-hmm. um, in terms of how effective they've been in um in transforming folks' lives, using some spiritual approaches. Mm-hmm. It is within the context of an organized religion, mm-hmm. but it still has that, at minimum, it has that cultural, uh, a very much cultural lens. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that you brought to the conversation, and you're probably about to go to it right now, mm-hmm. is um, Dr. Carl Hart. So I'll let you lead that off. Um, yeah, before I get to that, because okay. we want to talk a little about the academy and some oh. of the other approaches, so hard harm reduction in a bit, mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of deliver, because um, we talked about the effectiveness of AA, and we talked a little bit in the beginning about the culture of AA, and I just wanted to kind of deliver where I fear, like, the most extreme examples of the danger of this approach is, right? So call me a masochist. I'm just trying to be a professional. Like, Alcoholics Anonymous has what they call the big book. It's like 600 pages of personal stories. And, you know, I've I've read through basically and skimmed the entire big book, right? And this was one of the stories in the big book. It's from a Native American woman. And a Native American woman uh, basically talks about the white people that bring her AA, like they're angels, 
and basically says these angels came to me in my moment of need and saved me from, you know, my 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 situation, which was basically produced by other Native Americans. Mm. And she sort of puts it in explicitly racial terms that mm-hmm. I just want to, I think if, understand this, this is a, a self-published propaganda book. Yeah. So if this is what they're saying in their self-published propaganda book, how many other situations like this or even worse are people experiencing? Mm-hmm. So I'll just read a segment of her um, excerpt from the big book. I um, mean, it's all, it's all anonymous, so they use pseudonyms. So this is a Native American woman talking about her experience in AA. The AA woman made sure I had no more alcohol in the house. She was very tough on me for a long time. I went to meetings every day and started taking the steps. The first step showed me that I was powerless over alcohol and anything else that threatened my sobriety or muddled my thinking. Alcohol was only a symptom of much deeper problems of dishonesty and denial. There wasn't much deeper problems, dishonesty and denial. Now it was a matter of coming to grips with a power greater than myself. This was very hard for me. How could all these white people even begin to think they could understand me? So they brought in a sober Indian woman up to work with me for the day. This was a very powerful day. That Indian woman cut me no slack at all. I will never forget her. She convinced me that I was not unique. She said these white folks were the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm. Where would you be without them, she asked. What are the alternatives? You got any better ideas for yourself? How many Indians do you know who are going to help you sober up? Oh, wow. At the time, I couldn't think of any. I surrendered behind the tears of no answers and decided to do it their way. I found a power greater than myself to be the magic above the heads of the people in the meetings, which I chose to call that magic great spirit. The thing that kept me sober until I got a grip on honesty was the love in the room of Alcoholics Anonymous. I made some friends for the first time in my life. The fifth step enabled me to see my part, my part in my resentments and fears. In the chapter, How It Works, in the big book, I was shown some questions. The answers to these questions proved to me with the knowledge about my reactions to conditions in my life, every response to every resentment, real or imagined, had been sick and self-destructive. I was allowing others to control my sense of well-being and behavior. I came to understand that the behavior, opinions, and thoughts of others were none of my business. The only business I was to be concerned with was my own. Hmm. Yeah, so... I, I don't even know what it's, <laughs> there's a whole lot to say there. That's the, you know, great white hope. I mean, it also gets into this whole thing around nonprofits and how they come mm-hmm. in and pathologize uh, your experience. One of the things that I appreciate about uh, the Afrocentric approach to drug use is it's not inherently bad. Mm-hmm. It's yes. not inherently uh you know, yeah, African several... people are not abstinence only. Like right. the bong was invented in Africa, the water pipe was actually invented in Africa, mm-hmm. right? So abstinence is not inherently the only way African people have ever related to the issue of intoxication. Yeah, right. That again, I mean, I I keep coming back to this. I feel like that paired with uh, making that difference between use and abuse, mm-hmm. right? If it's not inherently bad, and it is. Uh, whether it's pleasurable, whether it is something that is used in a spiritual practice, and then you bring on conditions of pain and isolation and alienation, and then that can flip it mm-hmm. toward a person uh, seeking that out more and getting to a point where they are um, getting into a point where they are um, abusing it. Yeah, yeah. And again, obviously sobriety is not inherent with Native American culture with the peace pipe, relationship to tobacco. Um, but yeah, not just the whole, do you know any alternatives? Because that's the whole point is that 
We've not funded the alternatives. Mm. And AA is actually free. And most they're not getting paid to run AA circles, which mm. I think is an interesting challenge, again, to a, a Marxist profit-only theory of the world. Mm -hmm. AA is not about money profit. It's about power and control and believing you are connected to a divine presence or channeling a divine presence, mm -hmm. which some people use to help people and some people get off on it, mm -hmm. that power over other people. But yeah, this idea that because we've not invested in an alternative infrastructure, besides a little bit of harm reduction, which we're going to get to, AA is free, it's available, and people are like, well, that's all there is. So they invest so much psychic energy mm -hmm. into all there is, which is reflective of this particular ideology. But, you know, the stuff about, you know, these white people are the best thing that ever happened to you, that's obviously kind of ill, right? But if the I read the last part because it's about having an individualistic theory of salvation. Mm -hmm. That's not an African theory, that's not a Native American theory. Leslie Miriam Silco, a very famous Native American author, writes explicitly <clears throat> about how terrible it was when Christianity changed the theory of salvation and spiritual relationship in the Native American community from communal to individualistic. It means you got to start cutting people off because they are a threat to your own personal salvation, your but own you, personal Jesus. You know and what it's I mean? also really you got to you got to cut those other people off, mm -hmm. right? Because while while there's this this uh, aspect of it that is ind individualistic. There's also this uh, cultivating of dependency mm -hmm. on on this new community or this new uh, particular group. So. Exactly. And so, again, it's like the idea of like organizing politically within your own community. I can't do that because they're all drunk on alcohol mm -hmm. or high on some other stuff. Yeah. So by definition, it's like political alternatives to you start getting filtered through the worldview imposed upon you. Mm -hmm. So just look at like the AA serenity prayer, just a very famous mm -hmm. prayer that my father, even though he was not an AA person, he had gone through it and he used to say, like some of that stuff is useful in terms of like the serenity prayer, which goes, um, God grant me serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the, current, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And it's like, that's an extremely political statement. How do you know what can be changed? It's entirely dependent upon your political worldview, right? So the idea of accepting what cannot be changed when it's funneled through AA, an inherently you know, Christian evangelical worldview, you actually cannot be mandated to go to a 12-step meeting. I didn't know that. Mm. The court can mandate you to go to a meeting related to addiction, but not 12 steps specifically, because that's a violation of church and state. Mm. It has been ruled that AA is an inherently Christian group. You right. can't actually be mandated to go there. So this particular theory of Christianity, which is so much focused on accepting God's will, what does that mean for your political interpretation of the world? What does that mean for your interpretation of organizing people who aren't sober? Mm -hmm. And we just see it all the time where it's like, basically, if you don't fit a particular ideal of what an ideal political subject is, people dismiss the possibility of organizing with those people as Pollyannish. So you just accept what you cannot change. Mm -hmm. It's an incredibly powerful political world. Like I don't see any, <laughs> I don't see any sort of radical uh, addiction. Uh, at least twelve step. I don't see any radical twelve step political operators. Mm -hmm. Right now, I do hear some people who have a different interpretation of that relationship to drugs. Who that's actually something called the Drug Users Liberation Front oh. <laughs> in Vancouver. Uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada is the epicenter of what has been deemed the harm reduction movement, right? So it's kind of to transition into the previous question of what the alternatives are and how should we should think about them. Um, so harm reduction is basically a theory that says that people are going to use drugs and we should not have a particular political or moral focus on abstinence only in relationship to drug use. 
if people have used drugs for thousands of years, again, people were smoking in Africa before tobacco got to Africa <laughs> in you know, 1200 CE. The question is, how can it hurt people? And how can it hurt society? And how do we manage that harm? And give people on ramps to sobriety if they're ready and that's what they want. But if they're not ready or that's not what they want, how do we manage the harm to themselves and society? So harm reduction has been largely strengthened by the AIDS crisis, where people were spreading AIDS through intravenous drug use needles. Um, and people were like, well, someone getting AIDS is going to cost the state a ton of money because they're going to get sick all the time and overwhelm your health systems. So you just give them needles so they don't spread AIDS. And that kind of spread into larger theories of harm reduction, including so-called supervised use facilities or safe injection sites, where if people are using drugs, you have someone with them. So if they overdose, you can hit them with Narcan, which is an opioid um, receptor binding agent, which kind of reverses the overdose. Mm -hmm. But also just kind of checks on people and says that they need services, if they're ready to go into treatment, give them arm ramps to treatment. Now, these supervised injection facilities have been illegal in America for the past mm -hmm. 30 years, but they've been prevalent <clears throat> in, as previously stated, Canada, specifically the city of Vancouver, they're increasing throughout Europe. And this is increasingly seen as like the public health, intellectual, academic answer to addiction, or specifically overdoses, right? So now we're seeing with Biden, with you know the so-called shift towards more progressive theory, more money actually going into harm reduction, but that's obviously controversial because the absence only people are like, don't give people needles, don't give people tools to use drugs. Drugs are bad. Yeah. So that was I don't know if you heard about you ever heard about crack pipe gate. No. <laughs> crack pipe, you heard crack pipe gate? No. Oh, man. Well, Biden, for the first time uh, in 2020, oh, yes, uh, okay. the federal government in 2020 gave a paltry <clears throat> sum of money compared to the scale of the problem. Remember, there are 100,000 people dead, an unprecedented overdose epidemic. They gave a paltry $30 million for harm reduction. A lot of the harm reduction money comes from private foundations because the federal government wouldn't touch it, so it was too politically controversial. But now, for the first time, the federal government started to put money into harm reductions, things like needle exchanges, giving people Narcan. But there was a rumor that in the midst of these supplies the government was giving out money for, again, this is handing out money, not handing out supplies to states and nonprofits to do the work, that in the midst of these safe smoking kits, these safer smoking kits, they would actually give people glass pipes to smoke. Uh, right. cocaine with, rocked up cocaine. So this, of course, became Biden is giving you your government-sponsored crack pipe. Right. <laughs> so government-sponsored crack pipes, or Biden crack pipes, trended on Twitter for a couple of weeks in, in March, uh, February 2022, right? So if you actually look at the New York Times story, it sort of talks about how this crack pipe story kind of became the conservative criticism of 12-step, or the so-called abstinence-only criticism of 12-step is drugs are bad, People are being intoxicated, they're ruining their lives, destroying their community, and we should never support that ever. I think, you know what I think? I feel like that is a common approach to uh, any sort of pleasure-seeking behavior, right? When I think about sex, and I think about the desire to, uh, for, for if you want young people to have sex safely, Mm -hmm. So you give them condoms so that they have sex safely and you give them educate all of these sort of things. <clears throat> I think the Christian approach is to say no, tell them to not have sex. Mm -hmm. Not to say, 
uh, sex is a could be a nice thing. It could be a pleasurable thing. We just need to make sure that we're showing them how to do this safely and responsibly. Uh, it's automatically you no. Know, we are te- we are encouraging them or telling them or pushing them towards that thing. I think that that's a a common uh, response. Common yeah, Christian I mean, response. it's interesting because I think there's something happening here that's uh, related to that, but also somewhat specific to drugs in terms of. Again, African science theory has oftentimes been quarantined off into philosophy and sort of musings about the Black Panthers or a revolutionary imagined past of Africa. But our whole point here in this show and our work at LBS is to use it to solve practical problems in people's lives. And I don't think you can make sense of how people think about addiction without thinking about race and the history of race in the world. So... European peoples have a thing about rationality. Rationality is what liberated them from the monarchs. A rational theory of organizing the world based upon merit and not based upon heredity. And this rationality is like a prized possession of the Eurocentric academic tradition. It's what liberated them from the Dark Ages. It's what liberated them from the oppression of the Moors. And it's what liberated them to conquer the world. Mm-hmm. So drugs challenge your rationality. Drugs challenge your rational faculties that make you a civilized being in the Eurocentric worldview. And that is particularly dangerous if you value that rationality over everything else. Because you see a lot of liberals that are just, you know, super woke, Black Lives Matter. They don't talk a ton about, yeah, doing drugs is good or doing drugs should be cool. Because that, even amongst that crowd, they still kind of adhere to like this fetishization of the rational subject. Like the New York Times crowd. You know, so that's why it's like, well, be safe about it. Not like it might be good or useful. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. they, they value rationality. Now, on the flip side, black people have been told that they're irrational. That they are brutes. They have no cognitive ability. They are outside of the human community. They have no ability to rationally engage the world. So when you, And they've been seeing that the government will push drugs on your community mm-hmm. to increase the use of drugs to separate yourself from mm-hmm. engaging the world rationally. So black people are concerned about harm reduction because mm-hmm. they see it as, oh, yeah, they'll give you crack. They'll give you heroin. Mm-hmm. But they won't give you reparations. They won't, they won't fund the actual community. Mm-hmm. They'll fund the nonprofits to give you drugs because that's fine with them because they like it when you're high. They like it when you aren't engaged in the world rationally. And there's such a frustration in the idea of irrationality being tied to the black communities to addiction, mm. that the addictive subject before Maybe 10 years ago with the suburban white opioid epidemic, the addictive subject was Pookie from New Jack City. Right. You know, and there's this huge shame amongst the black middle class, black bourgeoisie who desperately holds on to their performances of Eurocentric rationality. That's what makes them good people, what makes them worthy of jobs and investment and Mm -hmm. votes and all this other stuff. The idea that our people could be doing this not to reject rationality, but to enhance rationality but to pursue pleasure and engage in creative pursuits, they haven't gotten to the point where they can accept that because they're so fearful of the black body being tied to irrationality. Mm. And the last thing I'll say is, again, for white people, they want to get black people off drugs because they're afraid of irrational black folks. Mm. They're afraid irrational black folks are going to do what they would have done if we had done what they did to us to them. So there's this fear of retribution, this fear of if we liberate black folks from that rational fear of incarceration, that rational fear of consequences, 
they could do anything to us. They could storm the gates. They could do January 6th times a thousand. So they love black folks getting off drugs <laughs> because that's this constant fear of, again, going back to slave revolts and the Native American resistances of these natives, if they tie into like a spiritual tradition through drugs, if they tie into something higher through intoxication, they're no longer bounded by our rational worldview and they could do anything to us. Yeah. So there is a lot of deep-seated, subconscious, racial stuff going on around the question of addiction. And it makes it very hard to have a practical conversation about empirics about what to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there is the, the aspect to the, um, you didn't use these words, but I'm gonna use it, the respectable Negro mm-hmm. um, who, realize and knows that historical uh, context of black people are irrational and want folks to like don't play into this it's all connected to what you were saying earlier in terms of like the stigma how it's so highly stigmatized um i don't want to preemptively go to Mm-hmm. But that's that's the next thing that I'm thinking of is uh Dr. Hart. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's interesting cuz Charlemagne I don't think he would consider himself that respectable negro. No. And, and it is it kind of comes on both ends of the spectrum. <sighs> where like if you've seen like hood stuff and you've seen drugs do crazy stuff to pe- in your mind, the drugs did the crazy stuff to people in the hood. I right. think Carl Hart argument is that no, the hood did the crazy stuff to people in the hood. Right. But what you see is the drugs. What you see is the addicts doing the crazy stuff, and all you can think of drugs equal chaos. Because you haven't seen drugs equal much else <clears throat> where you're from. Mm-hmm. Right. So then that's like the hood abstinence theory. <laughs> Which is a little bit distinct from like the bougie abstinence theory. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it gets into I don't even think I don't I don't know the degree to which that there exists a hood abstinence theory so much as it is uh, what is uh, Hart refers to it as the psychedelic exceptionalism? Yeah, that's, that's also part of it. Yep, yep. Yeah, and I think that that's very strong in the hood. That's is very strong that these dr- drugs o- over here, these are like okay, and these mm-hmm. are you know um, legit to a degree within the hood, legit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I, I think that that's a, a very prevalent thing in the hood. I also feel like uh, there is not a lot of knowledge around the science piece of it Mm -hmm. that most drugs if not all are somewhat plant-based because i think one Mm -hmm. of the things around psychedelic exceptionalism is folks go to what is most natural what is from the earth Mm -hmm. what is what is that and that's that's why i started where i started so just so folks know what we're talking about is dr carl hart who is just so people know he's working class black person who was born in southern florida uh you know um, he went into the army, but before that, you know, he was just doing, you know, for lack of a better word, hood stuff in my in the Miami area. Came out the army. He said, you know, early '90s drugs really messed up my community. I'm gonna go study drugs to figure out how to get us free of this stuff because drugs are crazy. But he gradually realized that it wasn't the drugs that made people crazy, and he did scientific studies that showed that people were entirely rational in terms of dealing with pain, in terms of still making rational decisions in the midst of cocaine addiction and opioid addiction. So he's been held up as a black adherent of the harm reduction methodology. He talks a lot about testing drugs, a lot about building up alternative infrastructure so people don't you know, have to use drugs they don't know about and really focus on medical care. And he went on The Breakfast Club with Charlemagne the God and the other folks, and he wrote a book called Drug Use for Grownups, and I'd recommend folks watch the interview, that talks about he basically wrote his first book, which was autobiographical and a little bit of um, science. 
But his second book was way more personal. It was like a tell-all. He's like, I'm coming out of the closet, basically. It's like, I am a recreational drug user. Every drug that you can think of, I have done it. I take heroin sometimes as a way to, you know, deal with life. And all the people saying that you can't be a rational person on drugs, look at me. I'm a tenured professor, I believe, at Ivy League University, who's well-respected throughout the world. So I'm using my personal story as a repudiation of the mythology projected onto people who use stuff like heroin. Mm-hmm. And again, Charlemagne, I think he comes from a world where he's like, he even said, like, I don't know many functional heroin users. And I think mm-hmm. that's the point. Was like, you don't know them, that they don't exist. But from a particular, because there are a lot of people from the hood who like, you know, get really into religion and 12 step and it's like and abstinence. He, he actually I mean? might know some. And he just doesn't but beca- know. Exactly. <laughs> but because it's so stigmatized, people are not going to say that they use heroin. Exactly. I mean, I don't know how many folks we could probably say if we were able to just do some sort of genetic testing or, or sample of like, especially in arts and creative communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he probably knows more uh, functional heroin heroin users than he thinks. Exactly. But in his mind, again, the addict is coded as like kooky. Right. And like stealing right. and robbing and doing violence to people in relationship to the addiction. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting. Again, like the YouTube comments were full of a lot of people being like Charlemagne's an asshole. Because Charlemagne basically is like, yo, are you high right now? Like you look kind of you look kind of faded. <laughs> you know what I mean? And people was like, come on, yo, that's kind of ignorant. Yeah. <laughs> and, but again, it's like from what I heard, a lot of people was like, I just don't know about that. You know, it's just not not like conservative, not like bourgeois, not like traumatized by the pain of the hood. It's just like, I just don't know about recreational heroin use. And again, it's like, it's not necessarily, I don't bump with that. I don't know. Because as I stated before, heroin does come from the plant. Heroin is natural. It's a lot mm-hmm. of synthetic opioids mm-hmm. that are hugely, hugely dangerous. So if we actually gave people heroin, it wouldn't be using fentanyl. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't be in this bad of a situation that we were in. So if you just come from the hood and hear someone talking about give people heroin, it's like, well, that sounds crazy. Right. Then when you think about it through the lens of, wait, so the heroin come from the plant, and it's the synthetic stuff that are from the pharmaceutical companies, and they're from China and from Mexico that are actually destroying our community right now, maybe I could think about that. Yeah. But that's where, again, the science comes in, and the basic logistics of, again, psychedelics come from the plant. Like, you actually see the plant when you smoke the cannabis where it's like the opium resin goes through a purification process to turn to heroin, mm-hmm. but it is from a plant. What do you think of uh, Dr. Hart's desire to regulate uh, more drug use? And I really want to know what you think about it as it relates to, you know, as we're moving into more legalization of cannabis and how that's being used. What do you mm-hmm. think What do you mean regulate? I think you regulate usage, have... So to deregulate it, to deschedule it, or no, to regulate it like to to have more harm reduction locations where people can yeah. check the potency. I, I mean, I, I hear it I, on one end. I hear it, but I feel like it's similar to what he said before in terms of it's it's going to be a jobs. It's mm-hmm. a, you know what I mean? It's another yeah. jobs program. Really. Exactly, and I, I think this is where my frustration a little bit with Dr. Hart comes in because his approach is very academic. And there are a lot of basic concrete things I think that he could tell people that would help us accept his argument more. So when he talks about stigma, one thing he says is that you keep hearing this story about addiction. That I was down bad, I was broken, I was stealing, I was robbing, I was selling myself. And he says that's the dominant story, not because it's always true, but because that's the story you need to tell 
to get services in this country. Yeah. Because like I said, the white power structure is very afraid of that person. Because mm -hmm. that person can do anything. That mm -hmm. person can spread AIDS. That person can become violent. That person can kill a white person. Mm -hmm. So if you tell the white power structure, I'll become that if you don't give me some services. They'll mm -hmm. give you some services. Mm -hmm. Right? And I, I think where Dr. Hart needs to think about his argument within the lens of like the political economy of services in this country. It's like a big part of the problem is that white people run all the service architecture in this country. Mm -hmm. So it's their desires and their fears which determine how money flows. And if you have black folks, a lot of them can accept a higher diversity of stories about drug use, which does mm -hmm. not require you to replicate the all my life I had to fight, I'm down bad, don't want right. to be down bad, no more theory of how you present yourself. And again, not mm -hmm. all black people. Some black people believe that. If you touch heroin, you're going to be down bad forever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think there's an increasingly complex relationship to drugs in the black community in terms of grassroots people who see it every day, where you could actually be a black person, work a service economy job, be in pain, and not have insurance and medicating that pain through what you get on the corner. Mm -hmm. Like, why do you think drug dealers wake up early? Unemployed people don't wake up early. Right. <laughs> That's not only people who have jobs, who have like a lot of times service economy jobs where they're in pain. Mm -hmm. You know, so this basic idea of like giving more money to black people who do services in our community, I think that would help him sell his argument to more Charlemagne the God's okay. audience. But he seems to have that more abstract academic relationship to the work. The solution. Right. Yeah. So just again, it's like. People on this channel probably know about Matulu Shakur. Matulu mm -hmm. Shakur is an in-prison political prisoner. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what's under-talked about about his work is that he was part of the takeover of the hospital in the Bronx that was done in the 70s with the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. And the Black Matulu Shakur developed a methodology of drug treatment, which used acupuncture as a way to do detox, not just from heroin. Because remember, people were coming home from the war on heroin he also detoxed people from methadone because mm -hmm. they rejected the medical orthodoxy, which says that the government basically becomes your pusher when you use methadone. That you sent us to war, you got us hooked on drugs, you made us kill fellow brown people, and now you're trying to give us this methadone drug, which basically keeps us addicted and keeps us dependent on you for our medicine. So if we do anything to challenge you as a state, you can cut us off from what we need to deal with our situation. So, like, the legacy of those sort of grassroots addiction interventions, I shouldn't, and that's the thing about Carl, I shouldn't read your book and not hear that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I should not read two of your books and not hear the word Matula Shakur, Lincoln Detox, mm -hmm. and Acupuncture. Right. But these legacies have been so subjugated that, like, the real reality of, like, you know, talk to people in the hood. Some of them are still doing acupuncture to detox people. Do they need money? Mm -hmm. Do they need laws changed to make it easier for them to teach acupuncture? I'm sure they do. I'm sure the drug policy nonprofits don't care about that because mm -hmm. they're plugged into the dominant methodologies. So if you start telling people stories like that and it's like, oh, it's people in the hood that can get the bag. It's like, oh, well, I want people in the hood to get jobs. I want them to get the bag. So now I'm listening. Right. Where if you're talking about I use heroin to this, and it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> even in his book, he literally says, like, yeah, I'm afraid for my son. I'm afraid of racism and heroin helps dull the pain. Right. It's like I get it. But. It's not messed up to be like, that's not what I want for me or my child. Yeah, 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 definitely. Here, I am curious about uh, harm reduction that focuses on the source of the harm and not our response to it, mm -hmm. right? So uh, having sensors that measure the dosage and all of those things, that, that could be fine. But if you are going to this because 
if you are going to a point of abusing it, right? That's mm-hmm. recreation use, and you just you just doing it for pleasure and to have a good time. Mm-hmm. But then, if you if you're flipping to the side of abuse because you're in a poverty stricken area, you're feeling alienated, you are experiencing uh, racism and oppression, mm-hmm. and you're abusing. What is are there harm reduction methods that focus on changing the condition that won't make me go to mm-hmm. abuse? I think that's the problem is that the Eurocentric worldview is about the corporeal body and keeping the corporeal body alive. Mm -hmm. So much of harm reduction right now is overdose prevention and disease, preventing disease, preventing disease spread. Those are, and also because of the politics of harm reduction, those have been the most acceptable in red states, right? So harm reduction, a lot of people criticize it because some people say it's gotten away from its radical roots. Because even amongst white folks, like that was a more radical theory of harm reduction, even methadone. Methadone is now really critiqued as like, they call it gas and go. Hmm. Give you methadone, get you in, get you out, don't care about you, don't give you no wraparound services. That wasn't what methadone was supposed to be. It's supposed to be a methadone, a methodology of care that then connected you to other services. But mm-hmm. the system, the vicious system we live in strips it of all its humanity and just turns it into, in many cases, a methodology of control. But, you know, the dominant system is very much like, again, People overdose less on methadone. That's all I really care about. Mm-hmm. So the way mm-hmm. I phrased the other day was like, harm reduction is about keeping you alive. Black people are more interested in saving lives than just keeping people physically alive. Mm-hmm. And saving someone's life means giving them a role in the community, giving them a way to produce value, not just for themselves, but a spiritual relationship to the world yes. where they are resonating and benefiting from their existence in the world, not just not dying. Right. So a lot of what I fear is coming is like, well, methadone is bad. Let's give people Suboxone. We can mail Suboxone to somebody's house. They don't got to come to the clinic. It's like from an African-centered perspective, you just in your house doing Suboxone all day? Yeah. That's not a good solution from an African-centered perspective. You may not die of heroin overdose or fentanyl overdose, Mm -hmm. but you aren't producing anything productively for the community. Right. Right. So, no, I mean, we're going to have to really think about comprehensively reengaging series of decriminalization because again drug policy is kind of like a libertarian thing like my body my choice mm-hmm. and it's like well they don't you don't have nothing to say about the community mm-hmm. and you don't have no knowledge of what the community needs to restore itself from the harms of criminalization and the harms of the war on drugs so a lot of what we're doing at lbs is talking about funding the community to be able to invest in people in that community to rebuild the social fabric of the community and that's not seen as addiction prevention but that is addiction prevention. Yeah. So one of the last things I wanted to talk about was there was an experiment done by a guy named Bruce Alexander, that's a Canadian white guy, called Rat Park. Rat Park is a very famous experiment that does not get talked about a lot in harm reduction circles, which really surprises me. Um, again, his methodology was somewhat questionable and replication issues, but the fundamental reality seems to make sense. You take rats, you put them in a cage, you isolate them. They have no social stimulation, and you give them two choices. Water with heroin in it, or water without heroin in it. What do they pick? Water with heroin. I, I would pick the same thing, right? <laughs> but if you change their environment, produce what he called Rat Park. Rat Park is an enclosure with greenery and stimulation and other rats to play with and have sex with and all this other good stuff. Mm-hmm. The rats tend not to touch the water with the heroin in it, mm-hmm. even when you offer it to them. Yeah. So as a fundamental social theory, this Rat Park experiment really expands the aperture of what can be thought of as addiction prevention to restoring people's social fabric. And the problem mm. is, white academics aren't qualified to do that. Mm. White academics and nonprofit folks can't really get the bag to do that. So you don't hear about that. 
mm-hmm. not to the lens of addiction prevention. And I think that's what the African Senate theory of addiction prevention is pushing us to do. So in Maryland, we're trying to use like the funds from cannabis legalization to do that, mm-hmm. as opposed to just go to more methadone, mm-hmm. as opposed to just go to more 12 step. That's a lot of what you get in inpatient drug facilities. You think you get something special because you pay all this money. Mostly you just get 12 step. What you could get for free on the outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a dirty mm-hmm. little secret of rehab. We pay all this money to get what you can basically get for free on the outside. Right. Mm-hmm. So we don't actually have, you know, and again, black folks are doing like different forms of spiritual work within the 12 step framework. It's not a destruction of 12 step. But if to say again, it's like I'm more interested in the African centered folks who are building a spiritual communal series for us, mm-hmm. rather opposed to being forced into the 12-step framework, that's all they can get. Right. Nope, I hear that. Well, <laughs> um, I think one of the things, again, that I really appreciate about this conversation and conversation uh, conversations like this, well, why we are continually in search of Black power, is that we're able to look at these particular situations and uh, apply this critical lens, apply this cultural lens and this racial lens on like, how are we approaching addiction? How we're talking about addiction, how we're interacting with folks Mm -hmm. and not just addiction, but drug use versus drug abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. And this is a topic I think we may come back to a couple of times because this Mm -hmm. is a particular, um, very important issue that's not nearly talked about enough that has a lot of complexity to it, both yeah. scientific complexity and social complexity. Yeah. Like any of the segments we did today could have been in its own episode by itself. Yeah, yeah, so I think yeah. this is something we'll come back to, and we hope that you are here with us as we continue to explore these issues and gauge these debates and think about our communal conversations and figure out how to take them deeper. And again, not to pick one approach over the other or demonize harm reduction or 12-step, but to try to improve both by continuing to go in search of Black power. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Mm-hmm.